0: You're listening to Skullcrack, Ireland's first and foremost Magic the Gathering podcast. I'm your host, David Wolfe, and I'm joined here by... Kieran And Alan.
1: Hey, lads, how are you? Hey, how's it gone? Long time since I've been on the podcast. Yes. Three weeks or something. There, I am I'm, I'm good. I am
2: hungover. I'm uh, and uh, yeah, just, just tired him over from a long day of, of celebrating Saint Patrick. Yeah, he's a great guy. <laughs> he he's stamped out druidism and uh, you know, and uh, traditional pagan beliefs in Ireland that brought over Christianity, which has been great for the country <laughs> in general. And it's good that we all celebrate uh, essentially what's colonial colonialism pre colonialism pre colonialism.
1: Okay, and you had a feast when, when to celebrate him, did you? I did not defeat. I a of points. If that if that counts. I did not uh, celebrate Saint Patrick's Day much. Uh, I, I avoided town like the plague. So I uh, I stuck to uh, playing vintage on Magic Online to uh, to celebrate my Irish heritage somehow. Not sure how that counts, <laughs> but yeah. How was yours, Wolf? Was uh, did, was anyone aware of it in, in Vietnam? Yeah, there's a big enough um, expat
0: community here and a fair few Irish people, so there were like a few little events on funny enough, um, I didn't really go to any of them. I went out with some work friends, wore a shamrock. Not an actual shamrock, a sticker of a shamrock. Fair play to ask. <laughs> Um, Yeah. In general, I, I mean, it is funny to even think that anybody in Vietnam is aware of St. Patrick's Day at all. I did teach all my students about St. Patrick's Day. We did a little reading about St. Patrick and watched some videos of hurling. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So, that was my St. Patrick's Day.
2: That's <laughs>
0: great. Um... But <laughs> we're not here to talk about St. Patrick. We're here to talk about magic. I don't know.
2: I don't have a very good segue for that. I'll, oh, no. You're usually the king of segues. Um, king of segues. <laughs> um, I know. So we're banishing the, the stakes from Ireland. We we will instead banish um, your viewers. We will banish your lack of knowledge of the last week of Magic the Gathering by bringing you content about Magic the Gathering in the last week. Here's so that will be banished. The we're faced with knowledge. Here's a segue, hold on. Uh,
0: well, it, actually, no, sorry, it doesn't work. It only would have worked if they banned something last week. Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: that would be good, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, we could have made some kind of joke about banishing something from Modern. But that is the news. They didn't ban anything from Modern. Boom. Any formats. So we had a ban and restricted announcement last Monday, which is when our previous podcast went up, went up, so we just missed it. Um. And yeah, there was nothing banned in any formats, no changes, no unbans either. Um. There was a paragraph posted about well, a few paragraphs, a short passage posted about Nexus of Fate uh, where Ian Duke discussed why they were not banning Nexus of Fate essentially um, in best of three, of course, because it's already banned in best of one. Uh, He basically said there's been a lot of discussion surrounding Nexus of Fate and like why is it not banned, etc, etc, and basically they just said that the data that they've gathered from Arena, Magic Online and the the Mythic Championship, uh, all that data shows that Nexus of Fate basically is not a problem from the perspective of power um, it's it's not an overpowered card or strategy and that they feel in best of three there are ways to combat it so you know with with sideboards um, and it's not overly represented in the metagame so they felt that there was no real need to take action and you know taking action in such a way you know it it, 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 it does have a cost um, when you ban cards so like the, the nexus of fate decks they're they're built around that card so if you ban that card the whole deck is gone so that certainly does have a cost whereas you know banning it only in best of one it only affects arena players so there's no real you know and they were able to give refunds of cards of uh of mythic wild cards so the 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 cost is is less there so basically yeah they're they're not banning nexus of fate they're gonna wait for it to rotate which is in six long months
1: yeah, I was kind of unsure why they decided to write about Nexus of Fate. Um, they were talking about this in the Pro Points podcast as well, but like, the next relevant big tournament is a modern tournament. There's no real big standard tournaments coming up. Nobody that I've seen has really been complaining about Nexus of Fate online since the Pro Tour or anything like that. So why is this the one thing they decided to highlight in this announcement?
0: Um, on the Magic Arena subreddit, people complain about Nexus constantly.
1: Oh, do they? Okay, uh, maybe
0: I should read that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I assume it's something. I'm, you know, companies these days they use the Reddit forums as basically their official forums for. I'm not just talking about wizards. This is like gaming companies all around, you know, all parts of gaming do this. So when you see that level of of dissatisfaction with what's happening in your game, I feel like they they need to address it in some way, and. In this case, Wizards were ba- are basically just telling the people who are complaining, look, you're wrong, <laughs> deal with it, or just play best of one, I guess, where you can't be Nexus of Fate.
1: Yeah, I think those people already have like a solution available to them, and it's going to be, I think, the more casual players who are going to be complaining on that subreddit and stuff. I know like, I know there are obviously lots of, lots of every type of player that don't like Nexus of Fate, but I feel like the more competitive players will just kind of deal with it, and one in every you know 10 games they'll play against Nexus of Fate or, or less, and they'll just they will just deal with
0: it, you know. Yeah, I also do. Feel yeah, I think it's. I, I feel like there were a lot of um pro players who had been expressing the sentiment on Twitter and like in, like in Pro Points podcast things like that, as you mentioned, that um they were just not interested in having Nexus of Fate. Like they they just would prefer if it was not around. So they just felt like I guess they just felt it was a cleaner solution to just have it banned altogether. But in this case, I think. Wizards want to write out their experiment to see if banning it just in best of one is okay. And I I don't know, as as far as I've seen, most of the complaining has kind of gone away. So I feel like best of one must have been a bigger problem. And we did see Nexus of Fate with heavy representation in the Mythic Championship. But for all that, it wasn't necessarily that successful, even though it was like a good deck.
1: Yeah, like there was a copy in the top eight, but I don't think it was particularly well, resented, well represented past that. And um, it's not like it's been dominating on ladder or anything since then. Like since Mono Blue became popular, basically everybody stopped playing Nexus of Fate because the matchup is just so hard.
2: Yeah, uh, I've, I've been seeing it constantly in on, on, on my experience on um, Arena uh, Best Street. Um, I, I think last night, I played, no, or night last I played nothing but Nexus Fate.
1: Oh, really? Okay.
2: Yeah, it was actually strange. It seemed like everyone was playing a, a teamer version
1: um, with uh, uh,
2: what's his name, Niv Mizzet.
1: Yeah, I saw those lists popping up. I think it did well in a in a couple tournaments, and and people are trying that for people are trying like reclamation decks without Nexus, but with Niv Mizzet for best of one now. I think as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So that that might be part of that popularity.
2: And
0: just
1: actually, yeah, that, that
2: makes all of sense because it's, it's a it's a very linear strategy that's easily destructible with sideboard cards, But um, yeah, best of one,
1: don't have to worry about that. Yep. Turn 4 or 5 Niv-Mizzet is pretty good. Good god. Yeah. Um... I lost to Niv-Mizzet in Vintage yesterday. My opponent was on <laughs> Oath of Druids, and I expected to lose to an Emrakul, but instead they put a Niv-Mizzet into to play. I was like, oh, okay. That's that's a new way to lose. <laughs> you probably just didn't have any Emrakuls. Yeah, probably, yeah. Uh,
0: is Niv-Mizzet, like, cheaper than Emrakul on Magic Online? I assume it is.
1: I would say it is, yeah. But I mean, if you already have a full Vintage deck, you're probably not worried about <laughs> one copy of Niv-Mizzet or Emrakul.
0: <laughs> true, true. Um, another thing in regards to this, uh, this ban announcement is, again, what they didn't say rather than what they did say. So I think a lot of people expected faithless looting to be banned in this announcement, or at the very least for a comment on it in the same way that they commented on Nexus of Fate for them to say, you know, they have said this in previous ban and restricted announcements. We are looking at this card. We are thinking about it for you know being banned. I think it was was it Cataxian Probe? No, I'm not. I can't remember which card it was. But there was one card that they one one or two cards I think that they singled out and they said, "Uh, we're watching this card. We're keeping an eye on it. We're gonna make sure it doesn't get too out of control." But yeah, fatal looting. Uh, so this is kind of fueled by uh the the rise of is it Phoenix as the de facto best deck in modern, and also you know our old friend Dredge is back again. Uh, every couple of years it rears its head and people get very annoyed that graveyard strategies are so hard to interact with and rest in peace is too slow. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think a lot of people are looking at Fatal Suiting as head and shoulders more powerful than most of the other cards in the format as as a graveyard enabler. Um, Other cards that people would generally put on that level are Ancient Stirrings and Mox Opal. So I think, uh, I mean, Ancient Stirrings and Mox Opal, people have been speculating for many years that they could receive some action at some point and then fatal suiting has kind of grown and grown into that role as well um what do you guys think about the fact that they didn't ban and do you think that they should take some action in the future
1: i think
2: the, there was, um, uh, you go ahead Alex. yeah i suppose I, I was gonna make a stupid statement that uh i think i think there was a lot of hate on twitter when uh, they didn't ban anything in modern and uh like frankly i think it's absurd to think that it would it, it's absurd to think they would ban anything in this this announcement because uh I guess is going to have two massive shakeups, you know, between uh, the London Mulligan, if, if if that does get incorporated, um, uh, and we, we do have the, the Mythic Championship coming up that, that is Modern with the, with the London Mulligan, and also like Modern Horizons, um, you know, will have a big impact on the format. So I, th- I think it's it's I think it was a bit of a stretch to think they would add anything uh, between now and these massive shakeups of format. And um, so uh, I, I think it doesn't make sense about anything until after, you know, until, until after these changes to see if there is uh, anything that's that's problematic.
1: Yeah, it just makes the timing of the whole thing very strange. This is something I think Paolo said on, on on the Pro Points podcast as well. It's like, it's so weird that they're having a Mythic Championship in Modern and then releasing this huge set that's going to totally shake up the foundation of Modern directly afterwards. Like, it, it seems like the wrong order to do it. Why aren't they advertising the new set with this Modern Mythic Championship?
2: Yes, yeah, that's true. It doesn't, doesn't make much sense. Uh, yeah. I think it was, I was when, when they unbanned uh, Jace and... Uh, uh, Bloodbird Elf. Um I think it was like there there was it was a GP like right at that weekend when they when they unbanned when they unbanned it, but they um but they, they didn't bring the band you know for that weekend, uh, which I guess made sense. One level of being like, oh, you know, we want to we want the pros to be able to prepare, you know, in, in the in the format they used to used it. then when the GP was, you know, was being what while it was being aired, everyone was like, Oh, it'd be great to see all these you know sweet new Jace and Bloodbird Elf there.
1: Yeah, I think it was just too close to that tournament. I th- I thought that decision was was fair enough. Uh, in terms of like faithless yeah. looting, I think it's just like it's it's like compare it to like ancient stir or to ancient stirrings, right? Where like they're both very powerful cards, and like they both do a lot for one mana. But like ancient stirrings, at least you can be doing like fair things with it. You know what I mean? Uh, like faithless looting, you're just always doing something degenerate because you're always putting yourself down a card. So whatever you're doing has to be powerful. And linear enough that you that you don't care about card disadvantage, which to me that's just like the core of like why it's not a, a well-designed magic card for like competitive play. It's you know what I mean? It's just like it's just such yeah. an all in card. Well,
0: I I think that there are decks that use it fairly, well, relatively fairly. I mean like the Mardu Pyromancer deck, not popular now, but I think that deck uses it in a kind of an okay way. And also even Is it Phoenix? Um, in Emma Handy's latest article on SCG, you know, she she went down, broke down each kind of best deck in each archetype in Modern, and like the decks that are just under them, and like why they're on top rather than the other decks. And uh, she and she she cited Ross Merriam for this, and I thought it was a great way to look at it. That Is it Phoenix is essentially a fair deck. It's essentially a, a mid range fair deck, and I think it is. There are some unfair cards in it, like Phoenix. And Faithless Uling, but at its at the end of the day it's it's a creature deck with some removal spells and some counter spells.
1: Yeah, I agree. But like it just like Faithless just gives it these like busted draws where you're just being attacked by like three Phoenixes on turn three or whatever.
0: Yeah, that, that is true. It does have the like combo combo outs um that other mid range fair decks don't have. So yeah, that's true. It yeah. does have that unfair element to it. Um on stream just the other day. Um, Melissa de Torah and um, Humph, what's his real name? <laughs> Paul Chian. Paul Chian. They were on stream. Uh, they were streaming from the official Wizards account and they discussed this. And yeah, Melissa de basically said, well, we just made a change in Modern, so we want to leave it for longer before we make another change. And that that is a good point. I mean, the more changes they make, the more quickly uh, people are going to be like less invested or have less confidence in the format and then chian uh, also said they wanted to wait some time to see it develop and see you know that that modern is in many ways a self-correcting format because there's so much there's so many cards available in modern um so you know it goes through cycles where you know an artifact deck becomes popular and then people are like oh i have to have these artifact hate cards and then a graveyard deck becomes popular oh i forgot my graveyard hate cards that's why i can't beat this deck and then they come back and matchups change and the metagame evolves so i think they're they're happy with that kind of um evolution of the format i think they call it churn so they're they're hoping that those kind of things happen and they need to give it time to see if that does happen before they take action i think
1: but like but like the is it phoenix deck has been winning tournaments since the weekend the set came out the card came out like it won the scg open that weekend there was another copy in the top eight and there's been multiple copies in in every GP top eight since then for months.
0: That is true. And to add to that information, we have, we had two modern Grand Prix this weekend, uh, one in Bilbao and one in uh, Tampa and Florida. And there were, hold on, let me check one, two. Uh, so two, it looks like two is at Phoenix in the top eight of Bilbao. And then one, two, three, four, in the top eight of Tampa. So that's pretty good. Six lists, like, uh, two top eights.
1: Yeah, and like one of the GPs had three dredge lists in the top eight as well. Like Faithless Looting is just too good. And like before before Phoenix existed, right, everyone was playing these like Hollow One decks, these Bridgevine decks for a while, even though that didn't last too long. Like Dredge has kind of been like remaining semi-popular this whole time. People started putting Faithless Looting in Grix's Shadow, which they'd never done before, just because they realized like, the power level is is there enough that even in like a fairer deck like Grex the Shadow you you can like sometimes it's worth it to have the card disadvantage. Mm. Like it's been dominating the format for a long time, and like it's fair enough if they say that that they want to wait for more changes and stuff. I think like what I was more annoyed about was that they didn't even mention it as a card they were watching, as you said. Neither this ban ban announcement or when they banned KCI, they didn't mention it in that that announcement either as a card to watch. But like it must be on their radar. Yeah,
2: it also even you no know, for any any reason alone, but the, the amount of hatred for it, or the amount of you know voices calling for a ban, and you know that that, that alone would, would give them reason to, to um, at least keep playing it.
1: Yeah, but like it is a fair deck. It just seems to be like more consistent and slightly more powerful than any of the other fair decks in the format. So it's like why would you really play anything else at the moment? It's kind of it's kind of like what what Splinter Twin was and they banned splinter to win for that reason as well because it just pushed a lot of other decks out of the format that did the same thing but slightly worse
0: so if you had to put money on it would you would you say that fatal suiting is not long for this modern world
1: i would hope not i mean there's other cards i want to get rid of as well though like i would like to ban like you know ensnaring bridge like i just think that's a stupid magic card that modern would probably be better off without and like blood moon i think as well as another card that you know the format would just be better and the player base in general would, would have a lot more fun if these cards weren't around. But, like, Fateless Looting is the big offender at the moment. And, like, nobody likes playing against Dredge, you know what I mean? It's You just get such a sinking feeling when your opponent just casts Turn 1 Fateless Looting and puts a Stinkweed Imp into the bin or whatever. You're just like, oh, the, like, instead of getting to make, like, 50 interesting decisions this match of magic, I get to make, like, three and just get to watch my opponent, like, spill their deck across the table from the, into the graveyard.
0: Yeah, I kind of I don't know. I just feel like that's kind of a feature of modern. <laughs> you just play against like
1: Yeah, I feel like it's like yeah. It doesn't have to be though. Like you can ban cards like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like they banned Eye of Ugin because people didn't want to play against like ridiculous broken Eldrazi draws. Like that was a feature of Modern until they banned that card too.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, well I mean the, the I mean the dominance of Eldrazi and Splinter Twin, like you mentioned, are were you know, it was way it was way worse then, than things are now. I, I see banning as an extreme reaction to, to um to a very degenerate, degenerate format. Um it's something that you know, we haven't quite seen yet with is a, is a phoenix. And then if we do see if it, it, it is, if it's a phoenix opens you know, puts up numbers um, to the same level as Eldrazi to the same level as Sniffer Twin, then yeah, definitely you know, we, should, we should ban it. Um,
1: I don't think that's the so, only reason to ban it though. Because like, like look at like a deck like War Prison, right? Which is like a Mox Opal and Snaring bridge deck. Like, imagine if like 20% of the metagame was was that or less for modern. Say it was like 15%. So it's not like overpoweringly strong, but like you have to play against Were Prison like multiple times every time you go to a modern tournament. Like, even if it's not like massively dominating the format, it's like that's still not fun for the majority of your player base and it doesn't create good games of magic. So, in that scenario, I would want to ban something from that deck, even if it wasn't totally oppressive.
2: So, we've uh, we seen decks like that be banned. <clears throat> Before, like you know, it, even if it's yeah,
1: KCI know, things like that. KCI eggs—they well, ban both of those for partially that reason. That's why they banned Nexus and Best of one as well.
2: Right. I, I, I guess the reason why they ban Nexus was you know, is 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 that a separate conversation.
1: Um, well, no, it's not. It's, it's a it's a card they chose to ban in a Magic format.
0: Yeah, I think it, I think Nexus is a comparable ban, but I mean also a part of you know part of why they chose to ban eggs and. Uh, or what do they ban from X, Second Sunrise? And yeah. um, KCI and Nexus of Fate is also, like, number of operations, like, literally physical manipulation of what you're doing is really hard and boring to watch.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Fatal Suiting is not that.
2: It's pretty... Easy.
1: No, it's not. I don't know. And a lot of it as well is, like, obviously they don't want to, like, totally ban a deck. People have spent, like, a lot of money on their dredge decks or whatever. Like, Wizards are never going to say this, but... It's they, they want to avoid that if they can. Like that's a that's a major reason in modern to to, to try to not ban things is because people have invested so much into their decks. Yeah, and
2: I, I guess you know, that's the reason why people play modern in the first place is because yeah, these are long term long term investments. Yeah, but
1: like, what kind of person are you if Dredge is your long term investment? Really, you know what I mean?
2: Although, I, <don't know. clears throat> I, I mean, I always think about that lovely Scottish guy I played against. Um, was he Scottish? Guy with the beard. Oh, remember the guy with the beard? Guys, remember we played against him at the um, played against a few times. At GPs. Uh, he had a full foil Japanese uh, dredge deck. It was wonderful.
1: Yeah, he should be on some kind of watch list or something like that. <laughs> you would. That's exactly. wonderful because you play Tron. I mean, yeah, because I mean, this is it. I mean, it's like um, it's
2: when you know if 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 I have you know a, a busted Tron ha- opening hand and then my opponent goes turn one, needless looting, discard, sinkweed and sinkweed. In uh my thought is just like, yep, this is the bullshit I signed up for. I mean yeah it's as what what we do.
1: What if you go like Urz is mine and then they go thought scare you and you mill a power plant and then they surgical your power plants on turn one? Like In game one. Yeah. Because the Phoenix decks all have surgical extraction main now because they have to yeah. dredge. So like that's that's <laughs> not you know, this is just stupid magic. Nobody should be playing these games.
0: Yeah, I mean I think I think pushing modern into a place where like there's you know decks that are maining surgical extraction is not not good. But also that's another thing that could just be said about Phyrexian mana and how that was a mistake. So I don't know yeah, entirely surgical. Yeah, I, I,
1: no, but if you need if you need those stupid broken cards to fight the most popular cards in the format, you know, get rid of them, I say.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I mean presumably the reason why I I, I think it speaks more of you know, how how terrible Phyrexian mana is that it's basically you have a choice is it is it to be an exciting choice between playing either good shot or or um surgical as you know a 4-0 freak and I guess you know, surgical is better than good shot right now.
1: Yeah, and it's randomly just good in different matchups and stuff. It just yep. does a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yep.
2: surgical, yeah. Like surgical your, you surgical it back. Get your other Phoenixes out. Oh, or classic sick play in Tron where they surgical one of your one of your tr- Tron mirror They surgical one of your Tron pieces in response. You surgical you surgical it in response, and then uh, fail to find your three. Yeah galaxy green
1: uh, randomly target like uh, a a scare in your graveyard when you're attacking them with a crackling drake to give it plus four power <laughs> exile all your other ones from your library <laughs> <laughs> that is so dumb I never thought of that I that I think in, in pro points as well I stole that from him yeah I,
2: Wait. Every, every, every time I think about on a, uh, it's, I think it's a stupid hyperactive drake counts exile cards as well That every so often I'm thinking of sideboarding a standard um, I'm like oh this card would be great for no nope, doesn't work against drakes because drakes are still big
1: yeah, that's one of the problems in modern as well. Is that rest in pa- rest in peace should be one of the cards that's good against the Is it Phoenix deck, but because it doesn't do anything against Crackling Drake, it's not actually all that good. <laughs> yeah, it's Ban Crackling Drake. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> definitely,
2: yeah, clearly, that's the solution. I mean, based on how this advanced before, this is what they. Did, I think that's probably more likely that they they'd rather um they would rather weaken the deck than destroy the deck. You know,
1: Yeah, they'll ban Copperline Gorge
2: and you know something else. Terrible about terrible.
1: Opt there <laughs> we should have reprinted to the modern. That's the problem. Yeah, opt was a mistake, definitely. But yeah, I don't know. We'll see how this pro tour goes. I think there is gonna be a lot of dredge and a lot of Phoenix. Because like the pros don't have that much time or like don't have that much capability to like to to spend their time testing modern, right? So they're just gonna go with a safe, good deck like most of the top pros. So I think you're just gonna see a ton of people on, on Is It Phoenix.
2: Yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh
0: I think it, it's in a, a weird spot as well where there's actually so many changes that are about to happen because the Mythic Championship is also going to... So there's a Mythic Championship coming, which is not always the case for Modern. You know, they're, they're actually few and far between. Um, so there's, like, high incentive to break stuff. Um, and you can break stuff in Modern, like the Eldrazi deck or whatever. Um, whereas in Standard, you know, you more often you're going with, like, a safer choice and you don't break it that often. Um, plus, they're testing the new Mulligan rule, which also incentivizes people to break stuff. Because it's kind of un, uncharted territory and stuff like that. Um, and
1: um, there's modern Herodic- just on that note. Sorry, sorry Dave. Just on that note, people should read. Maybe we can link it in the show notes. Frank Karsten's article, where he like mathematically shows that the new Mulligan rule specifically benefits the type of decks that we're we're talking about. As as we as we theorized in a previous episode, Frank Karsten actually did the math and said, yeah, the Faithful Saluting decks. Like Dredge decks and and you know Tron these kind of two card combo type decks as well they're all hugely benefited by this new rule he he did the sums on it
0: yeah you can always trust Frank Carson to do the math I'll, I'll link that article um yeah and then there's also Modern Horizons which is coming up just after the Mythic Championship and you know that could potentially change a lot of things as well so I think it's just a, a perfect storm of a lot of things happening at the same time where Wizards doesn't want to throw another another uh another factor in there you know uh, i think that's probably yep. motivating mo- motivating their 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 choice not to change anything this time but if it continues to be a problem after modern horizons i assume they'll take action then
1: yeah maybe they think just putting containment priest in modern horizons will will fix a lot of it or whatever you know will it no nah, i mean it's about as good as rest in peace i would say mm. all right shall we talk about standard for a little bit? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I haven't actually been playing all that much standard, just a, just a little bit on Arena. Hmm. Have you guys? I've been losing quite a lot. <laughs> well, I, I've, been, I've, been, I've
2: been winning some as well. I try new things. That's why I'm losing. you know, you got you to gotta, you gotta lose some stuff before you win some stuff when you're trying new things. Very true.
0: Uh, I've been playing a little bit. Again, still not playing too much in the ranked ladder, uh, because I want to kind of see how much I can ride it out. Um there was this conspiracy that was talked about on uh, on the game podcast as well of people's MMR not being reset uh, from season to season. So uh, I think the the main the main person who kind of discovered this was was the guy who was he was at number one mythic in limited for like two seasons in a row, but then he had a horrible win rate going into this season. But he got put into mythic at number one limited again, which didn't really track with his win rate for the season. So I think that's how people are thinking about how how people discovered that this is happening.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It's this is this is the one of the problems with systems like this where they don't like showing people the exact number. They just like putting people in these brackets and then people get to have these nice little uh, you know, rewarding moments when they they get up to a new rank or whatever, you know, get up to a new tier. It's like there is probably just a number that's working behind the scenes. That's that is your actual MMO rank. That's what's controlling who you're matched against. It's not exactly you know which diamond tier you're in or whatever. So it can lead to situations like that where the reality of what you're playing isn't matching up to uh, to what it says on the screen. Your rank is. Yeah, when when
0: you're in diamond, you do occasionally get matched against mythic players. So yeah, I, I think
1: that is probably the case. Like yeah, I'm a person who always just preferred to seeing the number, but lots of game companies just have moved away from from showing the player their actual ranking number and just i think it must just be a psychological thing it's just people people are happier you know if they just know their diamond rather than they they see their number has gone down 20 points after they lose a game or whatever that probably like hurts more psychologically so they don't want to show people that
0: yeah i think going down one pip or two pips or whatever is probably less demotivating
1: the problem with this, though, is that if they're going to reward you for getting to the top of thousand mythic, it's going to be and it's going to be much harder for you to climb back up if your MMR is high at the start of a season. That's like that's that's really not that fair, you know. Like if you if you're going to have to have twice as hard games as someone worse than you to to have the same chances as getting up to the top of thousand mythic in the first place, but at the same because like once no,
0: once you do get back to mythic, you're going to be placed in higher.
1: Yeah, you will. But if you're a better player you know it's probably not too much of a problem to stay top of 1000 anyway mm. whereas like no matter how good you are and even if your MMR that you can't see is is high enough that like you know you you are pl- playing against like very good players it's like you still have to do the grind of getting enough win streaks and stuff through the through platinum and through diamond and everything to get to mythic no matter no matter what your MMR is so that's going to be harder to do if you're being placed against better players at those lower ranks like that can represent a really big time investment for people yeah, that is true.
0: Um, I'm not really sure where this goes from here. I, I don't think Wizards will ever make like a statement on this.
1: Um, probably, I don't know. People might figure out ways to game the system based on evidence like this popping up, you know, here and there down the road. Uh, which is one thing I'd always be worried about. You know, people had rumors about it with the the last season where people needed to get top eight. Of course, there were rumors flying around that you know people were gaming the system and trading wins and all this stuff. Like, who knows if that's actually happening? But it's it's kind of one reason I prefer just to to have a simple system where you can see see your number. Mm-hmm. Uh, I prefer just transparency. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you say, yeah, I don't think they'll ever go that route.
0: Um, just to move on from that, what what decks have you guys actually been playing?
1: Yeah, so was, uh, <clears throat> I, I've been
2: I've been experimenting with a few different uh, Um, You know, some some, some for kind of heavy control to you know, mid range, um, and yeah, I, I, I guess kind of just like looking at the decks I've been up against. Uh, on Arena, it seemed like you know, the. Uh, something like uh, Nicole Bolas seems like should be well-positioned. I um, know anyway, you, you just have, you know, like, say, against one just having a big blocker in the air, uh, you, know, you know, does a good job. Does, does a good job. I guess the list I'll be putting together everyone's ones that kind of control the game with cheap spells, uh, with cheap, cheap rule, rule spells um, you know, in the early game, then in, in the late game, uh, just completely grind them out with uh, you no know, powerful cards like Nicole Bolas and the Alice Reborn. Uh, but then, as I mentioned, I'll be playing against nothing, but uh, Nexus, uh, For I think it was, like, on, on Saturday I played a lot. <coughs> Played a lot of Tardy. Played against with Nexus, so I switched short them on of red, and I have just been cleaning up. Yeah, nice.
0: Grixis versus Nexus is a fairly poor matchup for Grixis. I think Grixis actually could be a, a good a good choice right now though, because I, I honestly haven't seen that much Nexus. Um, I I think Gruul has has grown in popularity a bit. Esper is still popular. Um, and I think I think you can build Grixis to be good against Esper, mainly disinformation campaign i'm gonna say would be the best thing normally esper probably would be favored versus grixis just because of um like it's it's creatureless but i guess you know grixis does have the Rascal's contempts to deal with to deal with the teferi and it does have counter spells as well to back that up so i think grixis could be a good shot right
2: now yeah exactly so i I guess these are things i was considering going in and i think um i I think the nexus actually was a you know, if you're if you're playing in a, in a meta with a lot of a lot of Nexus, uh, you can't really consider um, And of course, so I think you. you have... I, I was I was happy going in, um, and then when I, when I played against the five times in a row, I'm like nope. Well, I'll try it again. I guess I'll try it again. Yeah, I mean, what what rank are you now as well? Um, uh, gold at gold level one like, on on the on the cusp of um not gold. Okay. So what is it?
0: Yeah, it it does also change. Like I I noticed as you move up between ranks. Especially like the different coloured ranks, like not necessarily from two to one or whatever. As you move between ranks the metagame does change. So yeah, it could be worth revisiting when you move up
2: move up into platinum. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to see a monorail into platinum fence, switch. I I I think as well, that's you know, the way to, to read the ladder is, is, is to like you were saying before with we'll to have multiple decks and switch based on based on what you're seeing.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's what you gotta do. I was I haven't been playing that much but I played a, a bit of canisters soul tile list um that he played at the pro tour uh, Piotr what's his name Glug, Glugowski, uh, where he played a soul list that didn't have any um branch walkers or Wild girl walkers cuz he just thought that like nobody would really show up on on red deck so there wasn't really much point dedicating that many slots so instead he was playing like thief of sanities and incubation druids uh, and I I okay. thought that list was quite good uh, I found it like a lot more powerful. Um, playing it on ladder than playing the Walgreen Walker package, because like a lot of the time with that deck, it's like when you're playing all these Branch Walkers and Jade Light Rangers and stuff like that, it's like you do end up uh, up on a lot of cards because you're drawing a lot of extra lands. But like, it feels like your cards are a lot weaker than what other people doing a lot of the time. So even though you end up a bunch of cards it kind of feels like it doesn't matter that much because individually the power level is so much lower so I like this different strategy uh that he brought to the pro tour of just just playing more powerful cards and just saying eh, if I play against red or whatever I'm just gonna take the take the loss
2: yeah look at look at this now, he yeah, seems, seems pretty pretty good we got for yeah, basic and stuff um,
1: yeah he's played it, thought Erasure
2: as well which are really good yeah yeah thought erasure are,
0: are particularly good against any of the gruel decks or the kind of mid-rangey other mid-rangey decks and the and the control decks as well of course yeah, thought Erasure's in a really good spot at the moment, I think, so probably a, a good shout. I've been playing mostly mostly bouncing back and forth between the aggro version of Gruul that I was playing before and the Warriors version, just depending on how the mood strikes me that day. Um, as I said, I haven't been playing too much in the actual rank because I want to just see how much my my rank decays over the month and just kind of try to stay in the top 1,000. Um, I think I'm around 500, 540 now or something like that. So going to have to start playing again a little bit because there's, what, 13 days left in the season. So, yeah. Um, But, yeah, I've been mostly playing on the constructed constructed events because the EV is a little bit better. I have recently been trying a bit of a variation on Karsten's Jund Warriors list that he played at the Pro Tour, and I like it. Uh, I like having access to status statue. Uh, it gets you out of a lot of situations, uh, along with Chain Whirler as well. So yeah, I like that deck. Uh, mana feels a bit awkward sometimes, but it definitely has really good aggressive draws. Um, feels like it can deal with most things. Cyborg is a bit funny because of your mana. It's the same thing in the in the Warriors deck Be- because of Unclaimed Territory. It's a bit awkward playing some some non-creature spells. So I have fewer I have fewer Cinder Vines, uh, and obviously Chain Whirler puts a lot of pressure on your mana base as well. So. But yeah, overall, I'm enjoying that deck and it's doing okay for me. I um, had a funny spot today where I was uh, <laughs> I was playing against a, like a black-white kind of angels deck and I'd gotten the game to a point where I think opponent, the opponent had one card in hand and I had nothing on the board and I top-decked a... Uh, oh, the, the opponent also had Lyra on the board, so like one card in hand plus Lyra on the board and I top-decked uh, Direfleet Daredevil. So I looked at their graveyard and I was like, hmm, okay. Um and the opponent had previously played in the previous game. I played Ethereal Absolution, so I was like, right, I want to leave their Mortify in the graveyard because if I, I could top deck another Dire Fleet Daredevil and kill that with the Mortify, um, before I die to it. And they had Rask's Contempt, Kaya's Wrath, and Cast Down, and I was like, well, I want to leave the Cast Down, or yeah, I want to leave the Rask's Contempt in there in case there's a a planeswalker and I top deck another Dire Fleet Daredevil. And I kind of want to leave the Kaya's Wrath in there because I don't want to just Kaya's Wrath away my my dude that I that I just drew. So I'll just take the cast down and kill the Lyra with the cast down. And oh no! Shame.
1: <laughs> That's a disaster. Direfleet Daredevil, I got to say, has been amazing for me in that deck. I really really liked it.
0: Yeah, I think Direfleet Daredevil has been one of the biggest kind of uh, sleeper cards in Standard for a long time. Because remember when it was printed, everyone was like, "Oh my god, this is Snapcaster 2.0. and then it just did nothing for a long long time. Um, and it's seen a good amount of play this standard in both the uh, the black red deck that was around for a little while and in this gruel deck. So I think it's a it's a cool card, and especially against decks that have mortify. I find that a lot of decks that have mortify also have enchantments in their own deck. So it's just really funny when you play the Dire Fleet Daredevil and you see them mousing over their own graveyard and like, yep,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, your mortify. Yeah, getting a chemistry's insight is really really nice as well if you ever get to do that. Yes.
2: Yeah, Yeah. And then it uh, was like a, uh, like risk factor. Even even though you cast it does you know exile and exile and risk factor uh, from the graveyard of moderate is a uh, you know buys a lot of time. Yeah, it's very good against moderate.
0: Yeah, it is fantastic because you can just take one of their cheap removal spells and you have a decent blocker. Of course, it like dies to chain Whirler or whatever or any of their burn spells, but that's still you know a burn spell that they didn't point at you. So yeah, it's a great card yeah. all around. Love it. I've also seen a lot of uh, kind of weird decks coming up. So I was talking with this uh, talking about this earlier with Ciaran. A lot of like weird, weirdo control decks based around odd enchantments. Like um, I've seen Ethereal Absolution a lot, and I saw like a Dovin's Acuity deck as well. So, Kieran, you were telling me about this.
1: Yeah, BBD uh, Brian Bronduin I think has been playing this on his stream where he's playing like he's practicing for the the Mythic Invitational. So he's playing this best of one Esper control deck with Dovin's Acuities, um, pretty much all all instants, and then for uh, and Wraths and stuff as well. And then, or I think three Masterminds acquisition. And then he's got a 15 card sideboard, even though it's best of one. And then he just uses the Masterminds acquisitions to get whichever win condition he needs from the sideboard. So against Red, he gets a Lyra. Against like midrange, he'll get a Teferi or whatever. And then he also has like other silver bullets in in the sideboard as well. Uh, it seems like a really interesting idea, to be honest. I like the idea of leveraging the sideboard in, in best of one. I think it's something we even joked about on the podcast like a month ago or something like that, but BBD is actually doing it and it seems to have taken off. Yeah, it's very sweet. It's the, awesome. problem with, the problem is if you play it in best of three, it means your sideboard is totally non-functional. Yeah, that is a slight problem. But it's, it's... But Yeah, he, he was playing weirdo cards. Like He was playing an ethereal absolution. He was playing like an eldest reborn, I think, to clear the minds healing grace all these very strange magic cards <laughs> i i
0: think it's it is really cool and best of one that it's basically like a Oh side deck or whatever like an extra deck or contraptions or whatever that's
1: yeah a, exactly
0: yeah it's in best of one
1: <laughs> and it's like it's pretty nice as well like if you're if you have enough removal and and you can slow the game down enough in your uh in your control deck that you know you can take a turn off to like find whatever win condition you need and that means that you're never going to draw the wrong win condition and have a dead card in your hand like that is really powerful it, it makes your deck a lot more consistent
0: yeah it's a very interesting concept for a deck um in terms of getting ahead in standard right now i honestly have no idea uh, i haven't thought about best of one at all really there's more more intelligent minds than ours thinking about best of one i think if if you want to get good decks or good like entertaining uh, lessons I guess Like if you want to learn more about best of one Like most of the MPL are streaming Every day on Twitch And they're streaming you know predominantly Best of one because they're preparing for it Not just the MPL, obviously also the other The invitees so there's so many people Streaming best of one at the moment there's like no shortage Of content um, but I I Don't have any advice for it when it comes to Best of three I think Gruel in all Its forms is still a decent uh, A decent thing to be doing I think it can, it can beat the control decks with the aggro draws. Um, kind of tough against Sultai, but usually interesting games. And then against like mono red, mono blue, it's quite good. You have your crawl harpooners and collision colossus and stuff like that. So still a good choice, I think.
1: I'm been finding that deck good, the mid rangey version in, uh, in best of one as well. I played a little bit of best of one ranked, and I think I went like 8-0 or 8-1 or something like that with Gruul.
0: Yeah, I think Fleet Daredevil again shines in best of one because it's so flexible.
1: Yeah, and it's like it's probably not happening as much now, but I was getting a lot of wins where I'd randomly just like collision colossus people out of the game. And since it's best of one, they're not they're not expecting it the first time and then the game's just over and they don't get the player ended in game two.
0: Yeah, and the best thing with that is when you can cast it on a gruel spellbreaker as well, because they can.
1: Oh I don't think about it. That's all good. So good, yeah. So much damage. It's against control. That's great as well, because like you know, you you cast your harpooner on two, and then your hasted spellbreaker on three, and like if they can't kill the spellbreaker uh, by the turn, your by the time your turn rolls back around, like it just gets in for so much damage. Like and yeah, it's people just don't think about that—the hexproof and and getting to buff it. It's great.
0: Yeah, and even like even if Gruel's spellbreaker does just get killed immediately, you, you have forced you have forced the play pattern of the game now. You've basically made your opponent play on their main phase, and presumably you'll be able to continue committing threats to the board, which means they'll continue to have to be forced to play on their main phase. So it like changes the whole yeah. game.
1: Like the best thing to be able to do after that is like is, is play a Phoenix the next turn on four, and they don't have counter magic up, and it's much harder for them to deal with the Phoenix then once it's resolved.
0: Yeah, and like then again, if they have Rascal's Contempt, they're kind of forced to use it right there and then.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Because even if they allow you to untap then you might have like a lightning strike to save your Phoenix or whatever. So, yeah. Um, shall we... Easy, sorry, say that again, Al?
1: Actually, sorry, just oh. on that note as well, uh, the, the um, what's it called, growth chamber guardian actually does exactly the same thing as well. Yes. Because, uh, because you can just leave your mana up and adapt it at the end of their turn. And then that's when they have to uh, moment of craving it usually. So like, that's another way you can time walk them. So it's actually just really good against the control. There's a lot of ways where you can make them essentially waste their turn when they leave mana up. Yes, it's fantastic.
0: to enter the arena
2: Uh, let us enter the arena
0: (laughs) alright so uh, speaking of sideboarding that's what we're going to talk about today on enter the arena Uh, we just want to talk about the idea of building a sideboard for your deck so again enter the arena we're focused on new players who are coming from arena to paper magic and I mean my bet my guess is that most of the people who start in arena will be playing best of one to start with just because the deck size is smaller so it's faster to make your deck um, matches are shorter there's less investment and it's simply just easier to find from the main play menu uh, so I think best of one is probably pretty popular with new new arena players so if you want to move from arena into um, into paper magic or even into best of three arena you have to start understanding how to build a sideboard for your deck. So we've pulled up just a few decks from the top eight of the Mythic Championship, the previous Mythic Championship, and we're going to use those as examples to talk about how to build a
2: sideboard for your standard deck. Class. Uh, Yeah, I I guess something I I was was saying kind of offline before, how I felt like learning how to sideboard um, and learning how to build a sideboard was like the the last thing that I figured out, Magic, that it's something that... um, you know, most actions you do on the board or during a game you can your know, opponents can see you can get feedback from other people whereas um building a sideboard and the actual process of sideboarding um is something that i always do by yourself so it's it's harder to get feedback on you know, if you're doing the right thing or if you're doing the wrong thing
1: yeah is- i think it's the i was gonna say i think it's one place you can really like get people surprise people as well even when you become familiar with with kind of deck building and you go to, say you go to a tournament and you're really familiar with like everybody's decks and their sideboard plans Like if you have the imagination and creativity to get a little bit uh, creative with yours and attack people from an angle that they don't expect, like that's often the biggest edge you're going to be able to get against good players at a tournament is just surprise them out of your sideboard.
0: Yeah, very, very, very true. And one of the ways to do that, which we wanted to talk about here was um, transformative sideboards. So there are there are many types of sideboarding that you can do and a lot of decks have different ways that they like to sideboard. Like it's more common for an aggro deck to sideboard in such and such a way, or it's more common for a control deck to sideboard in such and such a way. So one of the ones that I want to start with is transformative sideboards. Um, So control decks and combo decks often have these transformative sideboards. It's really hard for a mid-range deck to have a transformative sideboard because when we say transformative, we mean changing basically the game plan of your deck. Um, and it's quite hard for mid-range decks to do that, I think. Most of the time, they can either get a little bit more aggro or a little bit more control, but combo and control decks can can be quite different. So we see this in standard with Esper and with uh, Simic Nexus. So Simic Nexus and Esper both share this transformative sideboard philosophy of bringing in creatures.
1: Yeah, so I suppose kind of at, at, a, at a really basic level, it's like, why do you want a sideboard? It's because you want to increase the win percentage of your deck after you've sideboarded. And what does that mean? You only have 15 sideboard slots, right? So they're very precious. And that means that you have to devote these 15 sideboard slots in such a way that it's going to increase the overall win percentage of your deck the most. So what that means is that like you don't just have five sideboard cards that you bring in against Control, five that you bring in against Aggro, and five that you bring in uh, you know, against Midrange or against Combo or whatever. It's like, if your matchup is already really good against control maybe you have zero sideboard cards against control uh, in your deck you know what i mean you want to be your, your sideboard cards should be addressing the weaknesses of your deck and aiming to bring the win percentage up uh, in your bad matchups so that's that's the first thing when you build your sideboard you have to identify what are what are the weak points of this deck what do i hate playing against and then how can i shore that up by swapping cards out because i only have very few to do so and so generally let's say like if we take simic nexus as an example like, your your main deck is so linear, right? You only have one game plan, which is to resolve a Wilderness Reclamation, start drawing a load of extra cards, start drawing a load of extra turns with Nexus of Fate. Eventually you take infinite turns and then you kill them with, you know, whatever your prepared preferred win condition is, whether it's expansion explosion or a hydroid crisis or decking them with Teferi or whatever. Like, that's really strong in game one because your deck is so consistent and is able to put it together so fast. But after cyborg, when your opponents can bring in thought erasures and spell pierces and duresses and unmoored egos, it's like everybody is going to have a way to deal with that plan. So what you have to be thinking is, okay, how can I still win the game after every single person I play against, their deck is suddenly going to be 20% better to win the ma- to win a game against me in game two and game three. So that's where the idea of these transformational cyborgs comes from, is that so let's say, yeah, the Simic Nexus deck, Are we? will we look at the deck from the Mythic Championship, the top-outed?
0: Yeah, so this is the deck by Michael Banda, and here, out of his 15 cyborg cards, he has 11 creatures. So he has a Druid of the Cowl, an Extra Hydroid Crassus, three Incubation Druids, three Atsakan Archers, two Biogenic Ooze, and one Nezahal Primal Tide.
1: Yeah, so here, basically, in sort of a lot of matchups, you're going to be boarding out a lot of spells and boarding in a lot of creatures. And like the idea behind this is like if I take out like some of my draw spells, my fogs, um, you know, like a, like maybe even maybe even an nexus or two or a wilderness reclamation or two or a search for Azcanto, like these really powerful cards that you would think are the core of my deck and the cards that people are bringing in sideboard cards of their own to beat, if I can replace those with creatures and like it's happened to me a lot uh, in game 2s where my opponent dresses me on turn 1 and then suddenly they see that I have a hand that's made up of like mana dorks and a biogenic ooze, And all they can take from my hand is, you know, a blink of an eye or a growth spiral or something. Whereas in game one, I would have had six spells in my hand and they would have been able to devastate my hand by taking the key one. Uh, but like if you load up on duresses and negates and then your opponent just like sides out 10 spells and brings in 10 creatures, those cards are going to be so much worse against you. And you're going to have kept the matchup in your favor by by uh, beating what they expected you to do with the, with the transformational sideboard.
0: Yeah, so in that sense, you're not really, you're not actually necessarily boarding, sideboarding in a way that beats your opponent's original deck, you're sideboarding in a way that beats cards that they may have sideboarded in even.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's 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 you need it's generally for, for decks that only have kind of one plan of attack in game one, it's like, it just lets you totally change up what angle you're playing the game from in game two, and that makes it very difficult on your opponents to decide what what cards they want in their deck because then let's say after game two uh let's say you win game one right and and then you sideboard into this creature plan game two but they still manage to beat you somehow and now you're going into game three now you can like keep the creatures in or you can go back to just being like a fast combo deck because you're on the play now again for game three and that's something that your opponent is going to have to think about as well they're like okay well are they going to keep in all these creatures again now? Or are they going to keep in just a couple of them? You know, should I keep in the answers to, uh, to you know, the biogenicus? Do I like? Do I want to really play? You know, spot removal and stuff like that. Like, or or what do I do? You just want to put them in a position where it's really hard for them to make a clear good decision of uh, of what sixty cards they should have
0: yeah and i just want to shout out biogenic ooze in this particular instance as well because i think it's a a really interesting sideboard card for nexus because it actually even works well with the wilderness reclamation because you can use the instant speed ability of the biogenic ooze to create more oozes and just grow your board like massively in the same you know with with that extra mana that you would normally be using for extra turns you can just beat your opponent in a totally different way by putting you know 20 or 30 points of power and toughness onto the board over just a couple of turns.
1: Yeah, it's frankly pretty ridiculous, to be honest. And like Hydroid Crisis being in your main deck already makes it really easy to turn the corner and be able to do that because like they're always going to have to deal with every Hydroid Crisis you resolve and they're going to get behind on cards doing that. So it's, re- like, it's really hard for them to have enough removal to deal with the Hydroid Crisis you already have plus the Biogenic Oozes that you're bringing
0: in. Yep. Um... Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Another deck that follows this same principle is the Esper Control deck. So, again, as an example here, I have the the list by Yoshihiko Ikawa, who came second at the Mythic Championship, and completely creatureless main deck. So the Nexus deck has like two two creatures in it in the main, but this one is totally creatureless in the main deck, and then nine creatures in the sideboard. So there's four Thief of Sanity, three Hostage Taker, and two Lyra Dombringer. What? So why why is Ikawa
2: doing this? Well, I, I guess it's for for the same reason. I guess um. Like broadly speaking, um, my Fire like I think the, the creature cards, the creature cards that suit the strategy the most are very snow body cards. So five Jaggus. If you don't have an answer for for it straight away, you can spiral out of control. Uh, which you know, when, when, if your opponent is trimmed down on creature removal, they may not have the removal spell. You know, there and then to, to remove it. So something that plays into this strategy is Steve Sanity whereas So if they, even if they just turn three, Steve Sanity, you don't have um the removal spell for it straight away. they will very quickly take over the game. Um. So look look at these particular creatures. I'd say Lyra and Hush Taker are kind of more so answers. Um, so like a, like you know Lyra and some boards and some matchups will just end the game immediately, especially if they're trimming down on, on removal. Then Hush uh, Taker is what Taker is a. Uh, I guess it is like a removal spell, and um, uh, which is more effective when your opponent is trimming down on their, their own removal spells.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it also does an amazing job against Hydra Crisis specifically. It's really good.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. It is really good in that spot. And I'm, I, I guess just the philosophy here is that you're, you're getting to get your opponent. You know, the, the same way we said with the Simic deck. You, a lot of decks, most decks are built with removal in them because if you have a deck with no removal, well, you better be killing your opponent very, very fast <laughs> in order to take advantage of your no removal in your deck. Um, but most people, when they play against a creatureless deck, they're gonna think, well, in sideboarding here. I'm going to take out all my removal because it was completely useless that game. It just sat in my hand for the whole game and I had no target. So the philosophy is bring in creatures. Your opponent has taken out all the removal and now you can take advantage of that. And Hostage shaker, you know, specifically Thief of Sanity Hostage shaker, they really take advantage of that. Hostage shaker because if you don't have the mana to cast the thing that you've taken hostage straight away, Uh, that can be really risky because if they kill it any time over the next turn before you get a chance to cast it, um, then you're in an awkward position. But if people are just removing all their, or taking out all their removal, then the Hostage Taker gets much better. You have that time to cast the card that that the Hostage Taker has, has exiled. And also, you know, a good thing about Hostage Taker, Lyra Dawnbringer, they can end the game very quickly. Even Thief of Sanity is the same idea. You know, you're bringing these cards in and you're taking cards from your opponent's deck that, you know, theoretically they're better threats than yours. So, you know, Thief of Sanity is just a 2 2 flyer. It's going to take a while to win the game. But if you steal your opponent's Cruel Spellbreaker, well, now they're under a clock, as well as the fact that they're having cards stolen from them every turn. So, you know, the same thing with, you know, with Hostage Taker. You take your opponent's Phoenix, well, now it's a good threat as well. And Lyra Dawnbringer, well, that just does everything because it's a fast clock and it puts you out of reach of
1: being attacked back yeah i think thief of sanity is like one of the perfect examples examples of this because like in standard like what's the best card against thief of sanity it's probably shock right it's like it's one mana instant speed kills kills their three mana sorcery speed threat like it's you can't really do better than that in terms of uh, in terms of efficiency of removal but like shock is just like and a card you absolutely cannot leave in against Esper Control, even if you think they might bring in Thief of Sanity. How many shocks can you leave in? You do. It's just you just can't do it because if they don't draw the Thief of Sanity, you're basically down a card.
0: Yeah, it's very true. I mean, it depends how aggressive your deck is. Sometimes you'll just want the shock for the face damage, but everything outside of Mono Burn that's not really applicable. Mono Red Burn. So moving on from the these transformative sideboards, we have very targeted sideboards. So this happens a lot when you have aggressive decks. I find. That aggressive decks often want to bring in play sets of cards to address very specific weaknesses that they have. Uh, so again, taking a look at the top eight here, we have Alex Majlatan. He played a gruel Agro deck. So it's called Gruel Agro, but there's actually no green spells in the main deck. He does have four Rootbound, Rootbound Crag and four Stomping Ground. But the only green spells he has are actually in the sideboard. He's got four Cinder Vines and three Collision Colossus. So what, what's he bringing those in for?
1: Uh, Cinder Vines, definitely, you bring them in against all the Nexus of Fate decks. Uh, It's just insane against them. It's both basically an anti-storm card, like stops them being able to just keep cantripping and taking extra turns because they're taking a damage every time they cast a spell so it's just it it really reduces the amount of time they have to be able to combo off before winning and then also the enchantment removal part is just the single best card you can have against their deck uh, because it kills their wilderness reclamation and you get to deploy it on turn two before they can realistically have like a counter spell up or a way to remove it uh, most of the time so it's amazing there. It's also pretty good against control decks. I would I would bring in Cinder Vines generally against control uh, as well. Like control decks tend to have random enchantments hanging around. And like over the course of a game, it'll probably do like, if it sticks around, it'll probably do what, five damage or something like that for two mana, which is a pretty good deal. Yeah.
0: And then Collision Colossus probably bring this in in matchups like Mono Blue, um, Drake's decks. It addresses a specific problem. While also, you know, because it's a modal card, we sang its praises earlier, sometimes you just get people.
1: Yeah, it kills Lyra as well. It's uh, like the Red Decks don't have a way to kill Lyra without it.
2: Very true, yeah. And then we also... Yeah, yeah. I, I think Sorry, go ahead. No, just, just, just on, on, on why to kill Lyra, it's uh, you know, usually Red Decks, you know, just you know, pure mono Red Decks would, would have a Firefire fire and sideboard specifically for Lyra. Then, you know, Firefire fire is kind of dumb if it's stuck in your hand and if you're, like, against a control deck that, that hasn't played Lyra yet, it, it's it's dead. Uh, whereas, Leech collision crosses does the same job for cheaper yeah, it can just end the game in other board
0: states. Yeah, it can also kill Thief of Sanity, freeing up a burn spell to go to the face as well. So yeah, it's quite flexible. And then we also have four Lava Coil in the sideboard here. Um, that's going to be against mid-range decks, decks that go a little bit bigger than you, but not control big, basically to get blockers out of the way or to you know uh, get rid of a threat that's particularly um, particularly sticky, like a Rekindling Phoenix. So again, here we see very targeted sideboard and we have a Direfleet Daredevil as well to kind of uh, steal your opponent's answers. Um, Also, we had three Mono Blue Tempo decks. Um, The Tempo decks are very interesting in the way that they've sideboarded. Uh, I feel like most of them, I I guess we'll just take a look at Autumn's one because they did win. Um, Most of them, I feel like, have extra copies of cards that are already in the main deck, such as Entrancing Melody, Essence Capture, Negate, but then we also have some silver bullets. You might say like Deep Freeze, Surge Mare, Jace Cunning Castaway.
2: Is Jace Cunning Castaway a silver bullet?
0: Yes, Control can't really beat it. Yeah, yeah. Like um, like against Esper, if you can put it down and just plus it, and then make two Jaces, like they they will never beat you. Okay. Uh, Deep Freeze obviously coming in against you know again creatures that are too big uh, that can't be can't be interacted with by the mono blue deck you know creatures like niv mizzet or rekindling phoenix lyra again uh, surge Mare coming in against green decks of course um being unblockable in that matchup and also just being a big blocker surge Mare also coming in against mono red being a big blocker so I, I feel like the mono blue tempo decks here because of their philosophy of bringing in extra cards of what they already have access to in the main deck you know, th- this is a, a kind of a classic example of shoring up your weaknesses rather than um, rather than transformation.
1: Yeah, and I feel like this deck is able to do this because, despite the fact that it's monocolored, it it's not a linear deck. Like there are so many lines of play in this deck, and you're able to leverage like a skill advantage, and and uh, and like even in a long game, despite the fact that you're playing a lot of one drops, it's like you can very very easily win a long game. It's like I feel like being that type of deck lends itself well to these kind of sideboard changes where you don't necessarily need to change your whole game plan. you just need to make some of your angles of attack slightly more powerful in the matchup.
0: yeah and that that comes that comes uh, in like considering that is important when it comes to actually cutting the cards from your deck to bring in the sideboard cards as well. So like as we mentioned with some of the previous options, Uh, you know, you you have play sets of cards, uh, you have really effective, like, transformation strategies, you're taking out cards wholesale, you're taking out full play sets from your main deck occasion, or uh, quite quite a lot, whereas I think with the mono blue deck, it's much more okay to trim. You know, you just trim down a few cards here or there, maybe you trim down to two dive down, or uh, you trim down a couple of wizard's retort,
1: something like that, uh, to bring in,
0: a few extra cards from your sideboard.
1: Yep, definitely. Sometimes it's pretty obvious, you know, like if you're playing against Gruel or whatever, you can easily ditch your three spell pierces or whatever, unless you're scared of the uh, Collision Colossus or whatever. But a lot of matchups, it is tougher. Like we saw this in the Pro Tour finals when uh, um, Autumn was playing against Akawa uh, and their sideboarding was really interesting. Um, like people were really uh, surprised that they took out The Tempest Gins. I think maybe they only took them out on the draw. I'm not sure if they were out on the play as well. Maybe they had fewer of them on the play. Uh, But... They said afterwards, and the commentators I think spotted this in the match as well, that it's just too hard to resolve. The The card's just too slow. Just tapping out on your main phase for three mana is just not really viable when Autumn knew that their opponent Akawa, had brought in Thief of Sanities and Lyra's. So again, it's like it's both players thinking about these transformational sideboard plans as well. So Autumn is thinking, well, I can't tap out for a Tempest Gin. I need to keep up an Essence Capture because if a Thief of Sanity or a Lyra resolves, I'm going to lose the game. So in that sense, their sideboarding is is fully taking on board what their opponent is going to do or may do. Um, and I think that was absolutely masterfully displayed by Autumn. Uh, if anyone hasn't seen it, I would suggest going back and, and watching that final. I think it's probably one of the best displays of sideboarding I've seen. And uh, they said it in their winner's in, winter's interview afterwards as well, that Akawa uh, took all 15 of his cards every game and uh, from his sideboard and put them into his main deck. And Autumn said uh are we really doing this we're we're you know we're doing it totally blind like this every time we're not gonna let each other see you know we're, we have the same setup as last game but they both did that and they were both completely making their opponent uh make that decision each of each of the five games or the best of five games um having to constantly rethink every time okay are they going for the transformational creature plan this time have they taken them back out now that they're on the draw you know do they know do they only want the thief of Sanities on the play should i leave in you know the same amount of essence capture you know all that stuff yep uh so it's
0: it's a uh, good to keep your opponent guessing i guess um and then i suppose mid-range is the one that we haven't so much talked about yet and we don't have like a clear example of mid-range in this top eight actually uh, there was no Sultai in the top eights, but I think the closest thing we have is actually the Is It Phoenix deck. It's kind of like a mid-range deck with combo elements, I guess. Um, you could also maybe say that it's a control deck with combo elements, but I think it's the closest to a mid-range deck in this top eight, uh, again, played by LSV. And here in the sideboard, you see a bunch of one-offs. So there's like six one-offs, three two-offs, and then the the highest number that you get in the sideboard is three negate.
1: Yeah, so I think this is kind of interesting, and this uh, speaks specifically to this style of blue deck that plays a lot of cantrips. Um, So LSV in this deck has four opts, four charter courses, uh, four Radical Ideas, uh, two Discovery Dispersals, and two Tormenting Voices. So every single game you play with this deck, you're going to see a whole lot of cards, and you're going to mill through a lot of your deck. So that lends itself really well to uh to having a bunch of one-offs in your sideboard because since you're playing so many cantrips and you have so much velocity, it's a lot more likely that you're going to see an individual one-off in your sideboard than, for example, if you were playing a Soltai deck where for the most part you're just having to draw one card per turn.
2: Yeah, I, I guess what I, what gotta add to that as well is how you know, because this is very focused, but even though the play it plays out like mid-range deck, but um playing this myself, I've found that sometimes you don't want to take too much too many cards out. Like it, when you're when you're sideboarding, it's usually it's difficult to decide what cards to remove. So I find that in each matchup, you really, you really only just bring in maybe two or three cards uh, for most matchups, um, which which kind of kind of explains why there are one-offs. One um, I think against uh, but then, but then so most matchups you're only bringing in one or two cards. Then other matchups you are kind of bringing in six. You're bringing in your three against and, and your two deficits. Um, so I guess it's almost like you're you're sideboarding on two different axes uh, depending on what the matchup is. Yeah,
0: that's yeah, interesting, definitely interesting to think about it. Um. I guess this this deck, you would say that the sideboard is wide but shallow, whereas in a transformative sideboard, you've, you've got a very deep sideboard, but it's narrow, it's targeted.
1: Yeah. Yep, that's a great way of putting it.
0: So that's our Enter the Arena on sideboarding. Uh, hopefully it was helpful. Anything more that you guys would like to add?
1: Um. I guess we haven't really talked about, like, you know, sort of... This- The silver bullets maybe as much as it's relevant in older formats like like if you're playing modern or legacy or something like that your sideboard cards are going to be much more narrow and much more powerful in general than in a standard deck just because you have you know your options are are just much stronger so like you know every white deck in modern basically is going to have stony silence and rest in peace in their sideboard if they're they're able to play those cards and those are cards that can just single-handedly shut down entire archetypes if you draw one copy of them so that's but that's just something that that doesn't really apply to standard as much they they don't really print cards like that anymore it's it's sideboarding is kind of is more nuanced i think in uh, in standard than in modern because the, because your options aren't as powerful
0: yeah i i kind of feel like sideboarding in modern is actually a little bit easier than sideboarding in standard because you have those clear clear choices where you're like well i mean this card just shuts off their whole deck so Sideboard in this card, <laughs> uh, or yeah, don't have any exactly. so yeah, yeah. take my removal or whatever. <laughs> I I think it, it can be a lot easier. Uh, whereas, like you said, sideboarding in standard is a bit more nuanced.
1: Yeah, and we do have those cards in, like Cinder Vines and stuff, would be an example of a card like that in standard. But the power level is just nowhere near the what what you would be talking about for sideboard cards in modern. So yeah, that's just something to keep in mind, I guess. This kind of back and forth and thinking about, oh, will I will I sideboard this card in if they're going to sideboard this card in. That mostly, I think, applies to standard rather than modern.
0: Yeah. So that's our Enter the Arena on sideboarding. Um, if anybody has any more questions about sideboarding or how to build a sideboard, um, please don't hesitate to send them into to us at skullcrackpodcastgmail.com. Or you can tweet us at skullcrack. And I think that's going to do it for us this week. Cool. All right. Later, guys.
2: Bye. Bye-bye. close your eyes and this one is a home feel free to do the same close your eyes and imagine right you are in a crowded pub in temple bar you're pushing your way through the the green clad uh clientele uh in the midst of st patrick's day pushing your way through the crowd to get a lovely pint of guinness you as, you as you finally make it to the front of the front of the bar you order your pint um the barman pulls a pint you know the first pull for for about we put the bus to the first, port, the first port point for you and you're waiting for about, you know, 45 seconds as the game settles in this beautiful, magnificent The, the, the magnificent way it usually does, uh, while it's settling, the barman uh, puts his hand out for money, you hand over a tenner, he turns around, hands you back two euro, you're like, oh, this was a very expensive point, but as it's settling, you realise that it is absolutely beautiful and worth each of those eight euros. Uh, when the second point is poured, everyone around you gasps as they see how beautiful this point is, and as you pick it up, Everybody parts, you know, the, the, like the Red Sea, the crowd parts and let you through the crowd uh, with this beautiful pint of Guinness. As you step outside in the festivities of St Patrick's Day, there's a band playing, there's people dancing and people laughing. You take the first swig of Guinness. You're like, yes, this is what life is all about. This is this, the, the world is a beautiful place. Uh, you, and you put you, you, so you put the Guinness down beside you um, on a table uh, as you, uh, you know, as you. Take in the rest of the scenery, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, the people are dancing. You're like, yes, there's nothing that could ruin this moment. But then you turn around and your Guinness is gone. Anguish strikes your heart as as your vision blurs, as you realise that you paid so much money for this beautiful find. of Guinness. But now it's gone. You look all around you, there's no one, there's no one around you could have taken it. It seems like someone has just taken it and walked away. Uh, and now you're just, as, as you can determine the fact that you just have to let this go, you just have to you just have to accept the fact that this lovely find of Guinness is gone. Your 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 vision blurs even more, and and uh, a burning pain ignites in your chest. Uh, you fall as you fall to your knees. This burning pain uh, spreads straight through your whole body. You feel you feel boiled through your blood to your fingertips. Uh, you feel like a crowd has formed around you. Uh, but this, this 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 feeling, this sensation, kind of fades as as you feel like something is changing in in your location or or your your position your position. But then you realize you slowly realize that this this uh, heat flowing through your body is not pain. Is not Heat is not fire, but it's power. David Wolf, your spark has ignited, and now you're a planeswalker. <laughs> so my spark has ignited because somebody stole my pint. Yes, usually it's caused by a, a moment of anguish and pain. Which um, okay, it certainly was. I mean, eight euro for a pint. <laughs> Really happened. That's how much I paid yesterday. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. it's great. <laughs> Okay. So uh, you're a planeswalker, David Wolf. So yeah, as I suppose, as so. Um, as you're as you're lying on the ground, you open your eyes, you see yourself in a different city. Like it's it's a city that looks a lot like Prague. Uh, if you've ever been to Prague. I've never been to Prague because I was because I lost my passport, but okay. You make up a city that's just like that's just like Prague with spire towers. Okay. Uh, and there's lots of other people who are planeswalkers fighting. Uh this is Ravnica. You're in Ravnica, it's war to spark. Ah. You're a planeswalker now. Go. Go. Well, what's your what's your planeswalker?
0: Okay. Uh I, you're gonna have to give me a bit of help because I'm not I'm not fully there. But Okay. So I am Grixis. So I'm yes, blue black red. That's that's the mana cost. Just three mana. Three mana. Yeah. Each one. Um I didn't think of a name actually. I mean David is a terrible planeswalker name. Yeah, how about, uh, i about David a David Wolf. Yeah. Mm, that's not great. I don't want to move into Ireland Arlen, Ireland territory, you know. Although I do think we have Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think it would have to be my full name like Vivian Reed, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so we, we'll just go with David Wolf. Well, this is my first planeswalker card so we don't need to give me a subtitle. Just David Wolf.
2: Okay. okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's a uh, blue, black, red, and I come in with two loyalty. Yep. Yeah. And plus one is draw two cards, then discard a card unless you attacked with a creature this turn. Ooh. And minus two minus two is target opponent. No, sorry. I know we'll go minus one, minus one yeah. target opponent sacrifices a creature from among creatures. They control with the highest converted mana cost among creatures. They control
2: very good.
0: And I lose two life. The control. Okay. The planeswalker. Okay.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think it's very powerful so far as a tree drop. Um, yeah.
0: And I'm not entirely sure about the ultimate.
2: Okay. it will be uh, a, a Grix's way of winning the game. I'm sure.
0: Well, I don't think it has to win the game because the the first two abilities are already quite powerful. I think I think it could. Yeah, maybe be this could be um, more like um you know the new Dovan ban where you get to like dig through time basically.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So some small effect like that, smaller effect. Maybe actually, maybe it could be Cruel Ultimatum.
2: Oh, that'd be classic. Yes, that's perfect. Yes.
0: So yeah. So maybe like minus eight Cruel Ultimatum or minus seven, I guess. It comes down to two. Yeah. Yeah, but it comes down to two, but you're getting to draw two cards a turn every time you plus.
2: Oh, yeah. Sure. If you're lacking. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. Okay. Yeah. So I think minus seven because Cruel Ultimatum is seven mana. So. Yeah. Yeah. So there we go. That's me. as a planeswalker?
2: Lovely. David Wolf. All right. What's your plan? So for me. um, All right. This is a big Aldrazi. Is is the name of the Placewalker. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, the backstory is like he's a, a scientist obsessed with Jeldrazzi. Uh mainly because they're manipulating him, but he's also obsessed with them because they happen to have the same name as him. So them sharing the name is a pure coincidence. Or is it? Ooh. Speaking of is it? He is is it? <laughs> okay. Uh four, so it's four blue red. That, that, that's a good that, that's a good segue for you Uh four blue red, right? goes in with five Lonity counters. <laughs> uh,
1: it's
2: plus one is po- it's plus one is Ponder.
0: Okay. So for people
2: um, who don't know, Actually, for,
0: for oh, yeah. who don't know yeah. what Cruel Ultimatum is, I probably mm. should have said what Cruel Ultimatum is.
2: I feel so sorry for people who don't know what Cruel, cruel Ultimatum is. Well,
0: they're about to get their minds blown. So Cruel Ultimatum is a sorcery for seven mana. Ooh, hold on. Uh, it's a target opponent sacrifices a creature, discards three cards, then loses five life. You return a creature card from your graveyard to your hand, draw three cards, then gain five life. So it's pretty good. Oh, God. Um, yep. Yeah. So for people who don't know, what ponder is it's a single blue mana for sorcery. Uh, you look at the top three cards, and then you can put them back in any order, uh, and then you can shuffle your deck and then draw a card, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the shuffle is an A, Yeah, so it's uh, so, yeah. So Although know, it feels very very powerful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So um, so six mana ponder. Okay, and then you have a six mana loyalty or six loyalty planeswalker in play. Okay, go.
2: Yeah. So it comes into five. So the minus three is a uh, choose a target. Uh draw a card, then discard discard a card. Big Aldrazi deals damage to target dark... oh so choose choose a target creature. Um yeah big Aldrazi deals damage to that creature um equal to the current mana cost of the discarded card.
0: Okay, so that's pretty good if you're playing with Aldrazi.
2: Yes, exactly. That's I, I that that is a coincidence I did not think of, but yes, that is perfect. Um yeah it's basically blast 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 of genius is a card except it's you know drawing one instead of drawing three. But like a like a weaker blast blast of genius on so a minus. So um comes down to five. You can plus once and then minus twice. Um but then his ult is uh, so he comes in five loyalty, his ult is minus five, so you can ult straight away. Uh you get an emblem with whenever an opponent draws a card, this this emblem deals two damage to them.
0: That's uh Obnixus reignited, right?
2: It kind of is. Um this is whenever any player draws a card, um, the opponent loses two life. Oh okay. Yeah, so it's pretty similar. So it's, it's only if, it's that- Yeah, so this is only if the opponent draws cards. Only their stuff, yeah. Yeah.
0: Alright, I think uh I, know, I, I, I I think that's pretty good.
2: Yeah, I I was thinking just making the ult, um you get an emblem that's Fever Visions, but it's very too much text for a for an emblem.
0: Hmm, okay. I, I don't think it is. Well hold on, how, how much let me let me see how many lines of text Fever Visions has. Um I, I think that's a reasonable amount. Well, I guess mm yeah, it is pretty long actually. Has like
2: Yeah, so I guess text. yeah, especially with the Blast um line is having a lot of text as well. Yeah, it was be too much. I, I guess
0: I, I think that um you could get rid of some of the some of the text because fear of visions is at the beginning of each player's end step that player draws a card. So your your emblem doesn't do that. And then yeah. if, if the player is your opponent and has four or more cards in hand, fever of visions deals two damage to him or her.
2: Uh, oh, so we can play it like oblixus that uh your opponent get or yeah, um your your op- or target opponent gets an emblem. So the, so the opponent has the emblem which is uh, oh. at the end of their turn if they have four more cards it deals two damage to them uh yeah i think oh, that's one first
0: hmm. and he yeah but he can he can ult immediately so he can give that effect immediately so i, I don't think I, I think it has to be a bit yeah, was, yeah yeah there ha, there has for yeah. hmm, i don't know yeah for a card that does that i think there has to be a way to get around it a little bit but it is six mana, yeah. so i kind of feel like they the player will never have four
2: or more cards in their hand maybe you can change the amount of cards maybe yeah can two. yeah or build sandwich equal to the number of cards in her hand. Oh, yeah, Boom. that's good too. Oh, that could be good. Okay, I mean the mind can only expand uh, so far before it flies apart. That is very true. The favorite decks of your visions. Yeah. Uh,
0: um, all right. All right. We got some powerful planeswalkers here. Kieran so, uh, so, uh, had to run, so he didn't, he didn't get a chance to uh, to design a planeswalker. Do you want to design a planeswalker for Kieran,
2: or we leave it to him? Oh, we do too. Well, he, yeah. Well, well, he's playing a lot of vintage right now, so um, the plus can be uh your mana, your mana pool, <laughs> your mana color. <laughs> Minus can be um, uh, Show and Tell.
0: <laughs> What's a good cost
2: for this Planeswalker? Well, if it's vintage, it, it, it could be uh, five Phyrexian mana. <laughs> Wooberg Phyrexian three, mana. Phyrexian red mana. Yeah. Because of Niv Mizza as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, you can, we can make a, make a lot of mana um, with a plus. Uh, minus is uh, Show and Tell. Um, I don't know what else happens in vintage. I'm not familiar with the format. Shops. Shops. So the
0: ultimate is.
2: Of shops uh exile this
0: planeswalker, it becomes Mishra's workshop. Yeah. Perfect. I think, I think we're best off letting Kieran design his own planeswalker card. He can get back to us with it next week. Alright, that's gonna do it for much yeah, this week. Yeah. Bye guys. Bye bye.